0: Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this out. we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back here with you on the punch out 9th of august 2021 very happy to be back with you here on the show plenty for you here on the show as we always do We're going to be talking about the ongoing and expanding war in Ethiopia. We're also going to be talking about a harrowing new climate report from the United Nations. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with a new report showing how welfare reform in the United States has actually made poverty worse over the past 20 or so years. So-called welfare reform the centerpiece social legislation of Democratic President Bill Clinton's second term, and was, which was promoted through fraudulent and racist rhetoric, demonizing the poor as lazy and living high on the hog from the government's cash handouts, which had built up a culture of quote-unquote dependency, which was allegedly responsible for all the problems that low-income people in the United States were facing. The reform, which changed the Welfare, quote-unquote program, Aid for Dependent Families and Children, to the currently existing Temporary Aid for Needy Families, or TANF, was designed to move families from, quote, welfare to work by adding stringent work requirements to receive aid, setting time limits on said aid, and giving states total freedom in administering benefit levels, work requirements, and time limits, meaning they could be even more cruel than the federal standard. New research for the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities reveals that this so-called reform did not, in fact, improve the situation for low-income families, in fact, that essentially deepened the poverty they were in by arbitrarily forcing them into the poverty wage workforce, even when they didn't have jobs, and creating a situation by which the value of TANF benefits was allowed to decline substantially, meaning even those receiving assistance are worse off now than they would have been in the mid-1990s. As it concerns the issue of work, the report notes that research on this issue has shown that, quote, employment increases among program participants were modest at best and faded over time. However, that modest boost, they note, is a bit of a mirage because people are pushed into a poverty wage workforce with high turnover and inconsistent income. So, for instance, in the first decade after the program was implemented, deep poverty rose from 5.4% to 7.4% among children in single mother families whom the law most affected. Due to this increase, 300,000 more children lived in deep poverty in 2005 as compared to 1996. Ironically enough, the report notes that there's been a drop in deep poverty among children in single mother families from 2006 to 2016 only because other anti-poverty programs were either created or improved. So basically, they were covering up their explicit failure with welfare reform, but without having to actually admit it. And circling back around to the issue raised above about work requirements and also time limits, the reality is they're essentially arbitrary and not actually connected with stable, decent-paying work or people's ability to actually find work. Earnings data from Kansas, TANF recipients, reflects this point. Four years after leaving TANF due to a time limit issue, 38% of TANF recipients have reported no income at all, just no earnings. 40% have earnings below 50% of the poverty line, and 15% are somewhere between the poverty line and 50% below it. Only 7% have earnings above the poverty line. Just think about that. 38% of them have no reported income four years after leaving TANF due to a time limit. As we stated above, the reason why all this is happening is very clear. The standards are arbitrary that don't take into consideration that there are real-life barriers to employment. As the report itself notes, many receiving TANF, quote, face significant barriers to employment, including low educational attainment or work experience, lack of reliable access to child care or transportation, or domestic violence. Studies have also documented the higher rates of physical and behavioral health conditions, especially among parents whose TANF benefits are taken away for failing to meet a work requirement or due to a time limit. Also, recipients' age and experience often limit their job prospects. Almost half of adults receiving TANF are under 30, quote. TANF benefits are also extremely low, even when you are getting them. As the report notes, quote, In 2020, the maximum TANF benefit for a family of three in every state is at or below 60% of the poverty line. And benefits are below 20 percent in 18 states. They further note that, quote, the erosion of TANF benefits has fallen more heavily on black children. A majority, 55 percent of black children in the country live in a state with benefits at or below 20 percent of the poverty line compared to 41 percent of Latino children and 40 percent of white children, end quote. They also go on to note that, quote, in all but three states, the real inflation-adjusted value of TANF cash benefits has fallen since 1996 in a majority of all states. TANF cash benefits are worth at least 25% less today than in 1996. The decline has been most dramatic in the South, surprise, surprise, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas have benefits at or below 17% of the poverty line for a family of three, or about $308 per month in 2020. Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina have not increased benefits since the early 1990s. We're noting here that Arizona, Missouri, Indiana, and West Virginia all also have benefits at 20% below the poverty line. The net result of all of this is fewer families actually get TANF who need it, both because they're forced out of the system arbitrarily and because stringent requirements mean fewer people even try to apply. As the report details, quote, in 2019, four and a half million families with children were in poverty. For every 100 of these families, only 23 received cash assistance from TANF, down from 68 families when TANF was enacted in 1996. This, quote, TANF to poverty ratio is near its lowest in the program's history. If in 2019, TANF had the same reach as its predecessor did in 1996, it would have reached 3.1 million families living in poverty in 2019, 2 million more families than it actually reached. So in other words, millions of people eligible for TANF just decided to ride it out in the poverty wage workforce or poverty wage not workforce rather than try to enroll in the program. The through line here is quite clear. Welfare reform was never about decreasing poverty, but about decreasing the amount of money spent on the poor and increasing the number of people with no other choice but to accept poverty wage work however it comes. As the report itself notes, the negative impacts that this report details were actually all clear in pilot programs happening in the 1990s that were implemented prior to welfare reform itself. So it was clear enough that the whole issue of welfare reform was addressing a non-existent problem. But clearly it's not a political winner to say you're doing something simply out of callous disregard for poverty. So the evidence was ignored, the rhetoric was amped up, and the end result has been a significant increase in poverty, including poverty among children. In fact, especially poverty among children. In other words, welfare reform has been a total failure. Wildfires raging across Greece, Turkey, and California— have been drawing the world's attention back to the issue of climate change in recent days, and, right on time, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has released its most recent report on the state of the changing climate, and, well, it's bleak, it's harrowing, it's terrifying. Pick your word or phrase, but the bottom line is we are in trouble. As the New York Times summarizes, quote, even if nations started sharply cutting emissions today, Total global warming is likely to rise around one and a half degrees Celsius within the next two decades, a hotter future that is now essentially locked in. At one and a half degrees warming, scientists have found the dangers grow considerably. Nearly one billion people worldwide could swelter in more frequent life-threatening heatwaves. Hundreds of millions more would struggle for water because of severe droughts. Some animal and plant species that are alive today will be gone. Coral reefs, which sustain fisheries for large swaths of the globe, will suffer more frequent mass die-offs. A dangerous heat wave that in the past would have occurred just once in a given region every 50 years. Today, a similar heat wave can be expected every 10 years on average. And at one and a half degrees Celsius of global warming, those heat waves will strike every five years and be significantly hotter. And also at one and a half degrees of warming, ocean levels are projected to rise another one to two feet this century, regularly inundating many coastal cities with floods that in the past would have occurred just once a century. So like I said, it's not great. The report does, however, note that it isn't all over, detailing that if climate change can be brought to net zero by 2050, things will possibly level off and all the worst case scenarios that are even worse than what I just said, real climate apocalypse will not happen. However, they note that the current climate pledges made by governments around the world so far have the Earth on track for three degrees of warming by 2050, so significantly off target. They also note that climate change is unpredictable and that the evidence so far has shown that it tends to be worse than the model's detail, making the need for rapid action even more palpable. Ultimately, more death and displacement is likely as climate change accelerates a decline in arable land, clean drinking water, land that just isn't underwater in general, and so on and so forth, which certainly means more intense conflicts and wars as well as massive refugee flows. Some even say by 2050, 1.2 billion people could be displaced by climate change. Ultimately, the urgency could not really be any more clear. One thing that is also clear is that changes can't be made on the scale they need to be made. In the context of global capitalism and without more global cooperation, which especially means between the U.S. and China, which also means that as long as the U.S. is pushing a new Cold War mentality, the chances of saving us from total climate apocalypse are fairly low. Well, the war in Ethiopia is continuing apace as over the weekend, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, now calling itself the Tigrayan Defense Forces, is spurning any calls for a ceasefire and vowing to continue their offensives in the regions of Afar and Amhara that neighbor their base, the region of Tigray. Further tensions between Ethiopia and Sudan have been exacerbated over the weekend as Sudan withdrew its ambassador from the Ethiopian capital after Ethiopia declined the offer of Sudan to mediate between the government and the TPLF forces. So far, the renewed TPLF offensive has displaced tens of thousands of people in the two regions, as many as 300,000, according to the Ethiopian government. There's other estimates out there, 70,000, 100,000 in Amhara alone that came from the United Nations. So many, many tens of thousands of people displaced by these offensives. And also, interestingly enough, these offensives have become one of the principal stumbling blocks for international aid going into Tigray. Martin Griffiths, the head of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, recently ended a trip to Ethiopia and noted the key factor in terms of aid is that, quote, offensive military actions must cease. And there's only one side taking offensive action, and that's the Tigrayan forces, who refused to join a ceasefire which became unilateral after the government declared it in June. The reality has shifted the ground a bit in terms of the narrative war here. Western governments and the media had for months been painting the Ethiopian government as 100% bad and the TPLF as 100% good. But recent events have certainly complicated that narrative, most notably the fact that aid has in fact started to flow into de Grey, making good on government promises to increase the flow of aid after the ceasefire. As the U.N. itself has confirmed, hundreds of aid trucks have entered Tigray in recent weeks, and regular aid flights are taking place from Addis Ababa into Tigray. There have been some friction between various aid groups in the Ethiopian government over allegations of certain local laws that were broken. But overall, as Mr. Griffiths from the U.N. noted, the government is not conducting a total aid blockade and, in his word, took a quote-unquote constructive attitude towards facilitating aid flows. The TPLF has also been critiqued for waging war close to the historic rock-hewn churches of Lalibela. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Overall, really, the TPLF actions have so upended the previous media narrative, even the U.S. State Department, who for months seemed to think the TPLF could do no wrong, has issued a few statements calling on them to curtail their activities somewhat. Ultimately, this all points to the root of the conflict, the marginalization of the TPLF in Ethiopian politics after 30 years of brutal rule marked by rampant abuses of all kinds. Their own situation was precarious enough they were sidelined inside their own ruling coalition. But ultimately were unwilling to be peripheral players in the politics of the country. So they launched this war in an attempt to gain leverage inside of Ethiopia's broader political scheme. They gained the backing of the same Western nations that had supported them in government. And they used this history and connections to perpetuate a one-sided propaganda war around the world that distorted the issues. The withdrawal of the Sudanese ambassador also raises another dangerous element here. Sudan and Ethiopia are at odds over a land dispute, and the TPLF and the United States have intimated they may try to open an aid corridor from Sudan into Tigray, which would draw Ethiopia and Sudan into even further conflict, which has very explosive potential because it ain't just the land dispute happening here, but the two countries are also at odds over a dam building project on the Ethiopian portion of the Nile River. The TPLF offensive from the start until now has clearly aggravated many of the regional and internal conflicts across the Horn of Africa. In fact, it seems that that's a big part of what they're trying to do in order to gain leverage to force the government to come to the table to negotiate on TPLF terms. But they are not doing that, the government, so this whole offensive has now raised seriously the issue of a major destabilization in the region. There are plenty of issues to parse in this conflict, and no one is free from claims in terms of inflicting harm upon civilians, but at this point, it seems high time to abandon any narrative that does not place significant blame on those who started the war and escalated it unilaterally, bringing us even closer to the brink of an even greater humanitarian disaster in the Horn of Africa. That's the punch out for today.